Uh, this, this, we are starting a new series, and uh, we, we call this our, uh, our values series. We do this every August and September. And what we do is we just kind of every year remind ourselves of what we value as a church. Um, and so you'll see up on the screen, up on the stage here, the, the Christ value. This is our number one value. Everything kind of comes out of our, that we value Christ, we value His Word, and so that's where we're starting. If you have a Bible, we're in the book of Titus, chapter 2. And so basically we'll have four sermons. We'll have, we're going to preach today on Christ, next week we'll preach on character, then we'll preach on community, and then we will preach on commission. And you'll notice in the back the other three banners that represent our values. And why we have those is we want everyone who walks in this church to know what we value. We don't want that to be something that's secret. We don't want that to be something that we hide. We want that to be very public and very um, out there, that we value these four things. And uh, we don't value community outside of Christ. We don't value character outside of Christ. We don't value commission outside of Christ. Christ is the number one value. And it should be the number one value of every church. So Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 2, uh, if you don't know where Titus is, go to 1 Timothy, go to 2 Timothy, and then Titus ends right after that. Paul's pastoral letters, very short letters, this is a, a letter to one of his disciples, someone he was teaching and mentoring, very similar to Titus, is uh, Timothy, as is Titus. So let me start in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach with courage with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled or slandered. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. They cannot be condemned, so that an opportunity may be put to shame, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters, and everything they do well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. So Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, to teach your word. As someone who is a sinner, who is someone, Lord, who is not perfect anymore, Lord, that you have now given me the opportunity and the commission and the calling, Lord, to preach and to teach from your word. It's a very humbling thing, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me and teach through me. May people hear your words, not my own. Lord, we want to pray for a friend of some of us in this room. Uh, some of us know John's daughter, Rebecca, or Angela. We pray for John, Lord, who is in the hospital, a friend of this church, someone who helps our this church. 
Lord, we pray for him as he goes through a month-long recovery, Lord. And we pray for wisdom for the doctor. We pray that his family, his daughters, and his wife, Lord, that you would give them courage, that you would give them strength, and may you grow their faith. Lord, we pray for others, Lord, who are dealing with pain, dealing with illnesses and sicknesses, uh, something that, that maybe is more chronic, or something that they deal with on a regular basis. We pray for them. It's difficult to be here. It's difficult to sit in the pews. It's difficult to sit still because of pain, Lord. And, Lord, that's probably something they pray to you about, that you would take that away from them, but yet you have not. And Lord, I pray that you would give them strength and give them understanding and wisdom through that. Lord, we pray for, for people that are here that are new. We thank you that you brought them here. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them through your word, encourage them through the community as well. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would bring people into this church you would use them, Lord, here, that they would be encouraged and strengthened in their faith. And Lord, I pray for the elders of Redeemer Fellowship Church, for Denton, Robert, and myself. Lord, I pray that you would give us humility in our leadership. And may, Lord, that you would give us love for the people, Lord, that you would give us patience. We love you. We praise you. Um, I'm not really into art all that much. Um, I like Van Gogh, but who doesn't like Van Gogh, right? Like, who doesn't like Starry Night? Like, who doesn't have that poster on their wall or use it as a screensaver for the computer? Uh, it seems like Van Gogh is a pretty popular art, uh, artist, so a lot of people like him. So I can't really say that I'm really an artist enthusiast, but one thing that I do like a lot that I kind of think of art is cars. I think cars can be very artistic in a lot of different ways. Certain cars, some cars are just very practical, right? You may drive a very practical car, right? It's not all that beautiful. It's just practical. It has everything you need in it. It has comfortable seats. It has a CD player or an MP3 player. Whatever it has, it's just a functional, practical car. Now, there are some people who buy cars because it, they look beautiful and they like to drive them and they like to show off, right? Mostly to other people that they have enough money to buy beautiful, fast, <laughs> Cars. Well, I'll secretly, I would love to have a fast, beautiful car, but I'll be, I'm hoping God never gives that to me because I'll probably use it for my own glory and not for his own glory. So it's probably not good for my, my heart or for my faith. But I wanted to show a few pictures of some, some cars that I think are just gorgeous. Um, This is a 1965 Aston Martin DB5. You'll know that from the James Bond movies, most likely. This is James Bond's car, right? And it's a beautiful British car, and it's beautiful to look at, right? Uh, it's just a gorgeous, some of you might think it's gorgeous, but I think it's a beautiful car. And to me, looking at that picture, that is a piece of art to me. That'd be something that if I saw that on, in, a, in, a, in a building or on a car lot, I would stare at it for 10 to 15 minutes. Because I just think it's gorgeous. The angles, the, the way that it's shaped, some other beautiful cars that are out there that I think are just very beautiful. This is the E-Type Jaguar from the 1960s, 1961 E-Type Jaguar. It's, a, it's considered the most beautiful car ever made. And it's hard not to see it as the most beautiful car ever made. This is a uh, 1960s uh, Ferrari 250 GTO. This is a gorgeous car. It probably, if it was auctioned off at an auction, it would probably go for millions of dollars. And the person who buys it would probably never drive it, just to look at it, because it's a beautiful piece of art. One more car that I have, this is, more new, is a newer car. This is an Alfa Romeo, which is an Italian car company. Uh, it's an Alfa Romeo 8C, and it's a beautiful looking car. I think it's just gorgeous to look at, and if anything, it's probably looks better than it drives, as people 
say Alfa Romeo is one of the greatest cars in the world when it comes to reliability. Most of the time it's in the car shop because they always break down. But it's a beautiful car to look at. And, these, the, and I, you know, one thing about, about paintings and sculptures, you probably know who painted it or who sculpted it, right? But rarely do I, I don't know who designed these cars. I know the company who designed the car, but I don't know the actual designer of these cars. Who literally drew it on a piece of paper what the car will look like. But in, in a sense, they're artists. They are, they are painting a picture. And those, those pictures are actually moving uh, paintings. And they're beautiful to look at. They're, they're gorgeous. People pay a lot of money to just stare at it. And when we think of art, art reflects beauty, right? Art reflects beauty. And also, it reflects the genius of the artist itself. When you look at a piece of painting or you look at an art, you look at beautiful and it reflects the beauty of that piece of art, but it also says something about the artist as well. In Titus, kind of at the end of chapter 1, Titus, in the beginning of, of, of Titus, Paul is telling Titus to appoint elders in trees, as to appoint these elders to lead the church, and he talks about certain characteristics that these elders have. I think I read this when when Robert was being ordained a few weeks ago, I read from Titus chapter 1, what an elder is to, characteristically, is supposed to have. And what does Paul tell him to do? He's to, you know, elders are supposed to be ones who teach sound doctrine. But there are some that Paul is warning Titus against about these, those, these, these teachers who are false teachers. These rebellious people, he says, those who are empty of talk and deception. They're influencing others to falsehood. Their teaching is influencing people to falsehood. They're teaching what they shouldn't. If you think about people like prosperity gospel teachers like Joel Olstein or others who teach falsehood and lead others astray. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, when people will talk about Africa, other, other countries, and there tends to be a lot of prosperity gospel, a lot of heresy in some of these countries, and people talk about them, and I'm, wondering, I'm telling people, like, it's not their fault. They're just, they're just following what they see on television in America. They think that's what Christianity is. They think that's what uh, proper Christianity is, is, is these false teachings. And so false teachers who teach unsound doctrine will lead people astray. They're holding on to the traditions of men, Paul says. They are rejecting their truth. They're forsaking divine revelation. They're forsaking, forsaking God's word. They have used man-made methods and wisdom. Basically, whatever works, whatever draws a crowd, whatever can, uh, can increase their popularity, that's what they do. And there's, there's a book I was reading and talking about this from a from an American Christian standpoint, that this is a quote from a book. It says, No God or religion or spirituality, no issue of truth or beauty or goodness, nor faith, no hope or love, no justice or mercy. Only winning and losing in the church game matters today. This is what I call doing worship, a phenomenon that is played out week after week in progressive evangelical churches across the country. It's an attempt at worship relevance that has gone away, gone way beyond the original intent of market application to market servitude. And when worship becomes a pawn of marketing, it ceases to have much to do with the expression and experience of a living, intimate relationship with the one true God. That is a huge problem. People using man-made methods and not trusting in the Word of God. And in a sense, they are false teachers that are influencing people into falsehood. 
these teachers that Paul is warning Titus against, it says those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Because they are defiled, and because that they, they say they know God, they deny Him, and in a sense they're, they're hypocrites. They may seem like they have faith, they may seem that they are good, wise Christian teachers, but their works reflect the opposite. Because they are defiled, nothing they say is pure. Because the issue is, is either your teaching has divine origin or it has human tradition. Either your teaching is spiritual or it's ritual. Either it's reformed, it's going to transform lives, or it's just simply words. And simply songs, or simply lyrics. So Paul says in chapter 2, but as for you, you're not supposed to do what these teachers do. But as for you, teach God's word and model God's good works. So the big idea of the, of the text today, the passage, the sermon today, is Christ transforms us to radically serve others, which reflects back the beauty of the gospel. Christ transforms us to radically serve others, which reflects back the beauty of the gospel. So point number one is healthy teaching leads to healthy leaders. Healthy teaching leads to healthy leaders. Paul says, but as for you, he says this to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But as for you, Titus, and the appointed elders that you're going to appoint in Crete, that I told you to appoint, this is not how you ought to operate. You are to teach sound doctrine. You are to be different, unlike the false teachers. You are to proclaim sound teaching. Another way you can say this is that you are, you are to proclaim healthy teaching. The Greek word that they come, where we get healthy from is actually where we get hygiene from. Your word is to be health. Your teaching is to be healthy. Teaching that brings health to the heart and to the soul. Not a teaching that is distorted or diseased. Like these false teachers. They taught distorted and diseased teaching that did not bring health in the heart and the soul. You are to preach. You are to teach. You are to proclaim healthy, sound doctrine. Sound truth. And this teaching, this healthy teaching, is to fit with ethical instruction. In a sense, what you instruct people to do and how to live should come from healthy teaching. Behavior that fits or accords with or corresponds with sound doctrine. The whole truth of God's word. In a sense, teachers are never to share their opinion, but to share and proclaim the truth of God's word. Word, and when they proclaim or tell people to do something, it is to come from Scripture. Not from their head or from their heart, but from Scripture. What we, behaviors that fit, or instructions that fit with sound doctrine, or healthy doctrine, or healthy teaching, or sound teaching. Teaching God's Word properly and its implications on your life. So when we teach the Word of God Properly, it is to lead to implications on people's lives. Not, let me teach you how you should live your life. And by the way, let me add some verses to just support that. How God's word and its implications affect how we, the community of Christ, live and act towards each other. The implications of our teaching and actions on the world. The power is in the word of God. It's not in my words, it's in the word of God. What happens in Genesis 1, 1 through 3? When God spoke, light happened. 
When God spoke, the heavens and the earth were created. There is power in the word of God. There is not power in the words of man or women. There is only power in the word of God. What happens in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? That we are new creations in Christ. Christ's word, his salvation in Christ, changes people into new creatures in Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 16, right? The word of God is profitable for godly living. The word of God is what is inspired by God. It is what is profitable, not the words of men. So we are to teach sound teaching. We are to teach that things that are healthy, that come from God's word. The word of God creates, it transforms, it renews, not the words of men. Sound teaching is essential. What we do every Sunday is essentially centered and rooted in God's word. If it wasn't, you should run for the hills. You should run far away, very fastly, because the teaching of the word of God, it is what essential, is essential, not what I say or what I perform. Because the word of God is what going to present what is required as a Christian. Regular Bible teaching, sound teaching by pastors is what the Christian needs. You do not need simple words that make you up, that, uh, that kind of build you up or uplift you. You need the word of God regularly taught to you. It needs to be sound and healthy, and it come, needs to come from pastors, elders, those that God has placed in authority in the church to teach God's word. This is, some of you don't know, I'm writing a dissertation for my doctorate, and I'm talking about college students. I know there's several college students here, and I'm writing about what you need from the church. What you need. What you should require. And one of the things that you should require is the regular teaching of God's word. Not spontaneous and vague worship. Okay? You do not need that. You may think you need that. Someone may have told you that you need that. You do not need that. What you need is the regular teaching of God's word in the church. Corporate worship. What happens in, in Acts 2.42, like the early church? What did they do? They came together regularly. They came underneath the teaching of the apostles. They gathered together. They sang and worshiped. They prayed together. They broke bread together. This is what all of us need. We need regular teaching of God's word, regular fellowship, the, the Lord's Supper and prayer. We all need Christ present in the preaching of the word, fellowship and communion. Anything less is inadequate, right? Anything else is inadequate. If you if you were like, well, I'm not going to be part of a health health church. We're not health churches, but I'm going to be part of a health church. We're not going to have any pastors. We're not going to have any regular teaching of God's word. We're not going to have any regular worship. It's just going to be completely spontaneous. Do not ever, ever, ever go to that church. Ever. What you need is the regular teaching of God's word. You need to be pastored attentively and compassionately. God has called some to the ministry of authority in preaching and teaching as the means of care over his people. Students, all of us, need churches with qualified elders to care for their souls. Too many people who attend church don't know their pastors, or the church is too big for the pastors to know the people. You need healthy teachers, because healthy teachers produce healthy leaders. Healthy teaching leads to healthy leaders. And, and this whole chapter kind of feeds out of that, that what does it mean to have, what does it mean to fit with sound doctrine, and what is sound doctrine, which is in verses 11 through 15. So, healthy leaders lead to mature believers. That's point number two. Healthy leaders lead to mature believers. Healthy teaching prepares others for 
Christian living in community. You see that Paul's uh, main focus throughout this chapter is to instruct Titus on how the church should be, should be structured, how it should operate, what the, the life of the church should look like. This says older men lead those who are younger in Christian living. Right? It, it talks about what the requirements or the role of the older man and the older woman towards those who are younger. And what does it say that the older man is to model good faith, love, and patience, or steadfastness? And these modeling of these things produce this sober-mindedness, this, this self-control, this temperament about you. It also produces a sense of dignified behavior. It produces a sense of modesty or self-control. It leads to a gravitas that when an older man walks into the church, and, and a man of good faith, a man of love, a man of steadfastness, it produces self-control, it presents someone dignified, and if you're a younger man, you should look and follow that example. It's not a personality trait. It is a firm trust in God's word results in these characteristics. That's why healthy teaching is so important in the church. Because if you don't have healthy teaching regularly, you will not get models of good faith and love and steadfastness. And younger men will suffer if those models don't exist. It says the same about older women. Lead those who are younger in Christian living. Model sound faith. Model love. Model steadfastness. Because... And it says, if you do this, you will be prone not to slander, not to use your mouth to slander others or to gossip, to control your tongue. You'll be one who has control over its purposes. You're not a slave to expressive drinking. You will teach what is good to younger women if you are a model of faithfulness, love, and steadfastness. If you show this, if you model this, it will teach what is good. And people need to be taught what is good. And it presents this multi-generational church. The church should be multi-generational. It can't be a church full of old people and a church full of young people. It has to be multi-generational because the young people need the older people. And the older people, you need to show and teach and model good faith, love, and patience. You, you are, as a younger person, you are not going to learn those things from your peers. Because you don't have wisdom. You don't learn through life how to have good faith and how to have love and steadfastness. Healthy teaching has a ripple effect. Not what you need. It's feasting on the word, which leads to impact on others. But what impacts you, what impact you have is on other people. That what we learn through healthy teaching is not something we take for ourselves and go home and say, look at all that I've learned. We learn things to then to impact others and those who are younger than us. The needs of other people, the younger people, need wisdom that they lack, and this is God's means to give them wisdom. What does James 1, 5 say? Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives to all generously and grudgingly, and it will be given to him. By what means, right? The means are kind of left open, right? One of the means is what Paul says here in Titus chapter 2, that if you lack wisdom, look to someone who's older who has wisdom, who can teach you. Healthy teaching leads to equipping healthy leaders. I had a... Um, there was a deacon in my church when I was growing up. His name was Mr. Ed Richardson. And he, he didn't speak a lot, but he was just, I just, it was one of the person that you just kind of watched, right? And some of you may have other stories, other people in your, in your kind of growing up in life, men or women that you just kind of look to as models. 
And, and you, over time, you just kept watching them and watching them and watching them, and you just picked on up on some stuff. Maybe you got to know them well and learned some stuff through sitting down and talking to them. But I had, I had several men in my church that I grew up with that just, they were state. They talked to me, they didn't ignore me, and I just, I looked up to them. I thought they were honorable men. And I learned, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be an honorable man that someone looks up to. The church needs those men and women for, for people who lack wisdom to look up to. And too often, what happens is, is in churches, the older people get tired of the younger people, so the older people leave, or they kick out the younger people. But the younger people get tired of the older people, and they leave, and they go form their own church. And we have the same conflict and the same issues, and the older people are being used to teach the younger, and the youngers lack wisdom, and they never hardly have gained wisdom, because they lack it and they need it. What happens here is when we teach healthy doctrine, it leads to healthy leaders, and when you have healthy leaders, it leads to mature believers. You expand your teaching. Mature believers impacting those who are less mature. Older men on younger men, older women on younger women, younger men on boys, younger women on girls. And what does Paul say later on? He says, slaves are submitted to their masters. So he even goes into a further, he gets out of the generational differences, now he gets into an economic difference. Those who are free and those who are slaves. He says, basically, none are excluded from community responsibilities. Even if you're a slave, that doesn't mean that you're not responsible, that you have, don't have a role in the church. That the master is dependent on the slave faith, love, and steadfastness, which results in proper or fitting behavior to sound doctrine. The master doesn't have Christ. The slave does have Christ. Therefore, the master is dependent on the slave living faithfully and with love and patience. So the master would see that and then be re-brought to Christ. Everyone has a role in the progress of the gospel. Even you, who are students here, college students, some of you are new here, I'm glad you're here. I want you to stay here, but just remember that you don't just come here and say, well, I'm going to be part of this church, and I know everybody who's older than me will take care of all the other stuff. Right? Don't, they'll take care of all the nitty-gritty things, and I don't really have to do anything. That's false. Because what happens to all those children that came forth, those are all young girls and young boys, and they need older men and women. So therefore, you have a role and a responsibility downstairs, helping and teaching them what it means to have faith, love, and patience. Because they're going to look to you, and they're going to look to you as models of that. So that you do have a, an important and essential role at this church. And I was talking to a pastor at a church in Iowa, and he was saying this. I said, what did you do? Like, you know you're a college church, right? And you have a lot of college students coming to your church. How did you start middle school ministry or children's ministry? And he said, I know, because we discipled college students so well, they became the disciple makers of children. That's the way it should work. That's what Paul is saying here in Titus, Titus chapter 2. Healthy leaders lead to mature believers. Mature believer, one number three, leads to God's glory among the world. And it's interesting how Paul structures this chapter because he kind of ends, like, he ends it twice in verse 5 and verse 10. He kind of leaves this last phrase. He says, if this happens, verse 5, so that God's word, word will not be slain. The purpose, the result. The testifying of the truth, the power, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
It, it testifies. When healthy teaching leads to fit behavior and right ethics and right living, it leads to God's glory. It testifies that it's true, that it's power and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What the Bible says is actually true. Why? Because there's your example. The gospel is not slandered. He says in verse 10, so that they may, the master may adorn or honor the teaching of God our Savior and everything. When the slave acts the way that he should, when he is not argumentative, right, he's pleasing, it brings honor to the teaching of God our Savior. God is honored when people see the beauty of Christ's church. They experience God's power, a unified people, a people of love, a people of the word. You cannot privatize Christianity. You just can't do it. You just, you can't do it. When you do it, when you privatize Christianity, when you make it your individual thing, you're actually living a totally different religion, a totally different gospel. Because the gospel, as David read to us in Ephesians chapter 2, does not create privatized religion. It creates community and love. It breaks down the wall of hostility. It unites those who hate one another. You can't have Netflix church. You can't have your, your wish list and you just go, oh, which one do I want to watch tonight? You can't have Amazon wish list church, right? Well, these are the things that I want. Here's my menu. Here's the things that I have to have. That needs to be put to death. That needs to be cursed. What is, what is Paul saying in Galatians chapter 1? That if you preach another gospel completely the one that's different than the New Testament, may it be accursed. That is one of the major problems in American Christianity is privatization of Christianity. It is not biblical at all. Because if you privatize it, you can't show people the mercy of Christ in your life. I mentioned this yesterday, last week, and I didn't really get to read it, but I'm going to read it today. This is from a Beautiful Eulogy, Buster the Merciful. He says, We are here because Jesus Christ didn't say with cold indifference, give them what they deserve, they brought it on themselves. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And seeing us in our misery and need, he doesn't just feel for us, he takes the necessary actions to relieve our distress. He leaves the eternal glory of heaven and the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. He condescends to us, lives among us, suffers like us, dies for us. Do you understand this? Have you experienced this? How then is it possible to experience it and not display it? It's impossible. You haven't experienced it if you don't display it. If you don't display God's mercy amongst others, you do not know Christ. Therefore, you can't privatize there's no such thing as a Christianity disconnected from Christ's church where you're not in community with other believers serving one another and being rooted in the teachings of Christ. There's no such thing for it's a different gospel altogether, a gospel that should be cursed, for it does not bring glory to God, for it does not bring honor to his name, for it brings slander to God's And so that's what makes it so important. It makes it so important to teach sound doctrine, to teach what is the gospel, and to stand by it, and to be rooted in it always, because to be rooted in something else is a totally different gospel again. A gospel that says, what I want is superior, not what the needs of others is, is not a New Testament or biblical gospel. It never was, and it never is, and never will be. The fourth, the fourth point is, is, what is the gospel truth? 
The gospel church is not, if you guys have a steeple, if you guys have a pulpit, some hymnals and some pews, and a church sign does not make it a gospel church. So what is a gospel church? As you go to look to be a part of the church, as you look to commit yourself to the church, what churches should you look for? What gospel church should you look for? Paul gives us the answer in chapter 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 11. What is healthy doctrine? What is sound doctrine? What is sound teaching? The grace of God has appeared. In Christ Jesus, there is salvation. Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. There is no salvation in anyone else. No tradition, no family blood, no heritage. He talks about that in chapter 1. These teachers are relying on Jewish myths. No pasture. These things, there is no salvation. In Christ alone do we have salvation. And it says that this salvation is brought to all people. Christ brings salvation for all people, not just the Jews. That argument that the early church had in Acts 15, that the Jews were like, no, 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 you have to be circumcised, right? And Paul and Barnabas and the others say, no, that's not true. It's not a Jewish faith. Christ's salvation is sufficient for all, the so Greeks and the Jews. Christ brings salvation for all people. Not health and wealth, not self-improvement or self-help, not just white people or American people. Salvation is for all people. Sufficient for all people. Slaves and, mas and the master. Old and young. Men and women. Why would you teach anything else? Why would you want to be taught anything else? Why would you want to be taught a different gospel? Why would you want to be taught that you could be saved by your own works? Why would you want that? It's not true. We want our lives fixed by things under the sun, but then we can get the credit for our self-improvement. So that's why we can vote. That's why we look for gospels that tell us that we are the reason for our existence. We're the reason for our improvement, not some God or some Savior. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Grace has been given to you so that none can boast. The gospel is free, but it removes all pride, right? It removes all pride. You cannot boast in your salvation if Christ is the one who wanted it and it's free in Christ. This is sound doctrine. This is sound teaching that should be taught every week in gospel churches. And these gospel teachings are instructing us to deny godliness, worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Renounce what is worthless, affirm what is good and worthy, because we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Healthy teaching does not tell you to place your hope in the things of the world but encourages you to hope in what's come. That's what sound teaching, healthy teaching, tells us is not to put our hope in the things of the world, but to put our hope in Christ alone. And Christ is coming back. The hope that is guaranteed and sure, the hope that is in Christ Jesus. It's anchored in his death and resurrection, what he did in the past. He gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to transform us in the present age through the Holy Spirit, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. They're zealous for good works. They're zealous for, they're fans of good works. I know all of you are fans of something, right? You're fans of the cult, you're fans of the Titans, you're fans of uh, Tennessee Volunteers, which I am, you're fans of the Kentucky Wildcat. You're fans of something. Fans of TV shows and movies. You're zealous for something. And the gospel makes you zealous for good works. <coughs> What 
What are the implications of all this? Point number five. Implications of the church that values Christ. Yeah, I started when I started. You're, when, the, when the gospel is centered in the church, when, the, when healthy teaching and healthy, uh, healthy instruction and, and, and behavior that fits with sound teaching, it produces a work of art. A gospel of grace and holiness. Those who are zealous for good works. Where the church together serves one another. They are hospitable. They invite each other into our homes. We share the things that God has provided. We're caring. We're giving. We're sharing. We are people who are generous with our money and with our things. We give to the church. We give to one another. When one is in need, we provide. That is the work of art. That is fit behavior in response to sound teaching. Sound teaching does not lead to uncaring or unloving or ungiving hearts. When we teach sound, biblical, uh, God's word, it leads to zealous for good works. And these works should be exposed. They should be shown in the things that we do. And that's why we value Christ's character, community, and commission. Because when we value Christ, when we value the gospel, it leads to character. That we care what we do. We care what we, how we act. We care how we act towards one another. It leads to community. We are one to care for one another. We love one another. We want to, to watch over one another. We want to carry each other's burdens. We want to give to not only the church, but we want to give to one another. We want to show people hospitality. We want to show our love in visible, practical, concrete ways. Not to say, I love people, but actually show that love. That we are commission-oriented. We want you to share the gospel with the lost. We want all to hear the gospel. I don't care if they live in Evansville. I don't care if they live in the state of Washington. I don't care if they live in Nepal or China. We go to share the gospel. Why? Because we know the gospel. We believe in its power and its sufficiency. We know that it will transform people's lives. We know that it will build community with people who are once distant and hated one another and now brings unity. That's why we share the gospel. It's powerful. It's powerful. That's what we value these four things. I want to end with this. I've kind of picked on college students a little bit, but I knew that you were going to be here. So I picked on you. There was an article written, and it was titled, College Freshmen Commit to a Church. And it was written by one who went to Stanford and Birmingham. And he makes some really good points. Sometimes you're going to be tempted to get involved in something spontaneous and vague. Something that is led by your peers. Or something where it's only going to be your peers. And you run away from people who look like your parents. Because you're like, I got freedom you have that fresh air of self-reliance, and you just want to be free. You want to be free from responsibility from adults. You just want to be around your peers. And I want to just encourage you. You're going to go to different churches, right? You're going to go to this church on Sunday. You're going to go to a different church the next Sunday. You've got to commit to a church. You just you have to. You have to get involved in the, the drama and the mundane and the ordinary life of a church. Because over four to five years of your college experience, it will radically change you. You can't identify it with one Sunday. It's week after week, month after month. It's families inviting you into their homes so you can live in their basement because you don't have any money for the summer. It's a family inviting you over and doing your laundry for you. Those things, the church loving you, and yes, we are not perfect. No church is perfect. 
If you find the perfect church, then it really doesn't exist, and you probably should run away from it because it's not real. Like, there is no such thing as a perfect church. We all have flaws, but you've got to commit to the church. You have to. You, you, don't, know, you don't know how much you need it. The problem is, is you don't think you need it when you actually desperately need it. Because you desperately need it, what you require to be successful in college, to be successful as a follower of Christ in college, is you need the regular church in your life. You need it. You may not believe me, but you need it. You may think, I'm, well, I'm a pastor and I just want you here, and you may not believe me. No, no, you need it. It's something you need so badly, and you won't know you need it until you go four or five years in college and didn't have it. You go out in the world and you're like, where's the church? Where is my ministry? What am I supposed to be a part of? So I want to just encourage you that if you're a student, if you're anyone here who doesn't have a church, you're not committed to the local church, that you would go and you commit to a church. Be a member of that church. Be a member. Serve in that church. Give to that church. I know some of you don't have very much money. The church, God does not need your money, but it needs your faithfulness. Be faithful in the church. Be faithful. Learn what it means to be faithful. How do you learn to be faithful? By being in the church. By seeing people who are faithful. That's the only way that you're going to be faithful. Is by seeing it and watching it modeled week after week. Week after week. And a church that loves Christ and preaches Christ weekly and brings you to, in the presence of God through Christ. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it challenges us to do. It challenges us not only to uh, rely on your word, you know, there are times we're tempted, Lord, to rely 